Good morning. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, in Matthew 6, you ask us, which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? And then you instruct us, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Lord, with anger, divisiveness, violence, unrest, pain and illness in our country and around the world, it's easy for us to be anxious. But put it on our hearts to turn to you, to be constant in prayer. Give us the calm and wisdom to rely on you for our strength and peace and eliminate our anxiousness. Heavenly Father, we pray for the sick and hurting among our church family, in particular for Bill and Cindy Hay and Mike and Sandy Witten, as Bill and Mike battle cancer. Allow their treatments to be effective, strengthen their bodies, and give knowledge to their caregivers. For Richard and Barbara Thompson's granddaughter, Hollis, as she recovers from surgery, provide for a quick recovery and minimize her pain and discomfort. For Laura and Randall Lancaster and the loss of Laura's grandmother, Virginia Bolander, be with their entire family during this time of mourning. Even with the brokenness of our world, you provide for us so abundantly. We, cele we celebrate and praise you for the birth of Brooks Blackwood to the proud parents, Joanna and Corey. May they find great joy in this precious addition to their family. We're also thankful for the tireless work of our mission partners, Alex and Maggie Halbert and Aaron and Rachel Halbert, serving with MTW in Honduras. Give them boldness, courage, strength, and wisdom as they lead the church there and are planning to plant other churches in the area as well. And Lord, this is a reminder for us as we continue to pray for Josh and Liz and their kids as they make final preparations for their move to Honduras this summer and their long-term mission work there in partnership with the Halberts. May people be reached with your word and the materially poor be served to the, their work in Honduras. And Heavenly Father, we are excited by what you have in store for us through our study of wisdom in the first few months of this year. May it provide us practical application to lead more Christ-like lives, to better understand your word and plan for us, and to be drawn closer to you. Finally, Lord, I pray for the staff of this church in their service to this congregation, and in particular this morning for Josh as he brings us your word and message. May the Holy Spirit give us clarity and focus in order to listen and understand what you have to teach us through this message. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It's always a joy to be here to preach. We're back in the book of Numbers. I'm sorry, I'm not sorry. We still have a whole lot to deal with in this book, and there's still a lot left um, to go through. And today is no doubt one of the wildest parts of the whole Bible, and so I'm really, really excited to jump into it. And as I was thinking and preparing, it made me think about this question. What's your story going to be for 2024? It's a new year. This is the first Sunday of a new year. And every single year, Liz and I, my wife, we have a year in review session. We try to get uh, some hours together and we think back over the year that's gone. We look ahead to the year that's coming up and we try to outline what are the things that we want to continue? What, what are we doing that we really like that we want to keep going with? 
What are the things that we want to change that just aren't working in our family? What are the areas in our lives where we want to grow, um, where we need to seek the Lord and ask for His help? And normally, and rather unfortunately, the third of those options is a lot longer of a list than the first part of the list, which are things we want to continue. But that's neither here nor there. The question remains, what's your story going to be for this new year? Well, the passage that we have today presents us with a few different story options. There's a few stories that are all kind of crashing in together in Numbers 25 and 26. And I think all of them in some way really hit at the human heart and what we need. The human heart is filled with sin and bent towards evil, and we need some extravagant grace in our lives, and we need the everlasting faithfulness of God. And so before we get into the text and and dive into what's there, let's pray and ask for his help. Almighty God, as we come before you this morning, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand just how bad our heart is. Help us to see it in all of its darkness and not to shy away. And Lord, also help us to see very clearly the magnificent and marvelous and matchless love of King Jesus for us and the immensity of his grace and help us to cling to him and to joyfully follow wherever you might lead in our lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to read some portions of Numbers 25 and 26. So follow along and we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 25. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Not a great start. (laughs) These, the daughters of Moab, invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. It got worse. And so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. And Yahweh said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before Yahweh, that the fierce anger of Yahweh may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them. The man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And Yahweh said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood. 
because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Selu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zer, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. And Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, harass the Midianites and strike them down for they have harassed you with their wiles with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. After the plague, Yahweh said to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel from 20 years old and upward by their father's houses, all in Israel who are eligible or who are able to go to war. And Moses and Eleazar, the priests, spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, take a census of the people from 20 years old and upward as Yahweh commanded Moses. This was the list of the people of Israel, 601,730. These were those listed by Moses and Eleazar, the priest, who listed the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron, the priest, who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For Yahweh had said of them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Amen. So what is your story going to be for the year 2024? Well, I think what is happening in Numbers 25 and 26, there's a few stories that are crashing in together, and here they are. And I want to look at them with you, and I want to grapple with them, because some of them are really, really delicate and intense, and we need to, we need to see what's really going on in our own hearts. But here's the first. The first story is the story of egregious sin. The story of egregious sin. The second is the story of extravagant grace. And then the third and probably the most brief will be the story of everlasting faithfulness. So those are the three stories. Let's see them crashing together in Numbers 25. And so you remember, here's where we are. The people of Israel have journeyed through the wilderness, 40 years of wandering, and they've made it to the plains of Moab. They're dwelling here in this place called Shittim. They're about seven to 10 miles away from Jericho. They're right on the Jordan River. They are poised and ready to enter into the promised land. They're there. They can see it, smell it, taste it. The journey is almost complete. And you remember just in these past few chapters in the Balaam stories, what has been happening? Well, Balak, this king of Moab, invited Balaam, a sorcerer, diviner, some sort of mystic, to come and to curse God's people on Mount Peor, and the people are down below, and Balaam couldn't do it. Even with all the money and the riches of Moab presented, he couldn't curse God's people because he could only speak what Yahweh gave to him. So he could only bless the people. And so they've got the, the blessing of Yahweh, the wind in their sails, the star that's going to rise out of the people of God, pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, deliverer. It was all there. They were poised to take the land. 
But the astute and maybe even overachieving reader of the book of Numbers, if you've read ahead, you'll know that not everything is as good as it seems. You see, in Numbers 31, we get a little note from Moses that Balaam, as he was getting ready to leave after blessing God's people, looked at Balak and said, I can't curse the people, but I have an idea. They're pretty sinful. They've got a lot of sin down deep in their heart. And I bet if you gather up some of the beautiful women of your country and your neighbor Midian, and if, if you entice them to come and have relations with you, and then you can just invite them to your feast, and they'll do it. Because they can't help themselves. So, hey, just a little advice. Take it or leave it, whatever you want to do. And off Balaam went, and now here we are. While the people of Israel lived in Shittim, dwelling there, poised entered the land, here's what happened. The people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. You ought to shudder when you read that. It's not funny. It's not nice. It isn't a joke. It's gross rebellion against a loving, gracious, and almighty God. These, the daughters, invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. They were excited about the party. And what's fascinating here is that back in Exodus, at the beginning of the journey, 40 years ago, part of the reason why it took 40 years, you remember Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the law, receiving God's gracious word for his people. And down below, what were they doing? They were building a golden calf to worship. And they were having all kinds of sexual morality around this worship. And then just a few chapters later, Moses intercedes for the people and averts God's wrath. And then God in chapter 34 of Exodus makes a he, he renews his covenant with his people. And this is some of what he says. Listen to this. Starting in verse 10, behold, I'm making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels. And then a few verses later, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you are going, lest it become a snare in your midst. Tear down the altars, break the pillars. You shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited to eat of the sacrifice. Yahweh, 40 years ago, knew what would happen on the plains of Moab. The reason that Yahweh knew what would happen on the plains of Moab in this very moment is because he knows the human heart. He knows your heart and he knows my heart and he knows that our hearts are bent towards sin and evil all the time. It's in us. We can't get away from it. We can't hide from it. We can't run from it. It's in there. And so he knew when his people about to enter into the land that they too would succumb to the very sin that their fathers succumbed to. Sexual immorality wrapped up in idolatry all with a pretty bow of being yoked to a foreign God. And you see that word, verse 3, so Israel yoked himself to Baal. Baal, the first mention that we're going to see this Canaanite deity over and over and over again that's going to tempt God's people to forsake Yahweh and to pursue their own gratification. And this yoking language, this is covenant language. 
To yoke to something means to unite yourself to it, to, to become one, to join it in its way. And so God's people are yoking themselves to Baal, to all the neighboring nations, and they're desiring to follow in their ways for their own gratification. This is gross covenant failure. You see, sometimes we think that sin is just doing bad things. Sometimes we, we wrongly think that sin is just, just doing some bad actions, and if I clean up those actions, then, then I'll be good. But what Numbers is trying to remind us is that sin is always and has always been spitting in the face of a loving God. It's a relationship, and sin is looking at God and saying, I don't want you, I don't need you, and I don't want to follow in your ways. And so Yahweh's rightful response is his anger is kindled. The Hebrew is his, his nose burned hot. His nose was red with fire. He was breathing out of passion for his covenant promises. His anger is kindled. And so we read in verse 8 that there was a plague that came, killing up to 24,000 of the people. And then also, he wants us to see what, what really is going on at the root of this. There's, there's patterns to the sin in the human heart. You see, this new generation is following along with the old generation, doing the same things. It's the same old, same old. Same song, different tune. And here's what's going on at the root. Look at verse 4. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them and pale them in the sun before the Lord. Now, when we think about those who are acting unjustly or those who are acting in, in, in gross sin, egregious sin, which I love, you know, a very basic definition of egregious is outstandingly bad, shockingly bad. Normally, we go to verse 5. Moses said to the judges of Israel, kill those men who participated. Just, just kill the ones who participated and yoked themselves to Baal. You do the crime, you do the time. Okay, leave us out of it. But verse four says, no, 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 no. You're just as much a part of this. Because Yahweh says, take the chiefs, the leaders of the people and hang them. Why? Look at verse 18. Because the wiles of Midian and Moab, they've, they've beguiled the people. This, this tricky, deceitful sin has made its way into the camp has made its way into the people of God and the leaders have done nothing. Most of us have some sort of authority, some sort of leadership structure, whether you're a parent, whether you're a leader on a team, whether that be at work or at school on a sport team, you have some sort of leadership. And what happens when sin comes into the camp? Often we do nothing. And it grows and it festers and it starts to infect the whole. But what this is showing us is that we have an obligation to deal with sin when it comes into our midst. We have an obligation to deal with the sin that comes into my own heart. I have an obligation to deal with the sin that comes into my home, that comes into our church, that comes into my neighborhood and our community. I have an obligation towards it, whether I'm involved or not. And the reason that we have an obligation is because of who God is. See, that's what's going on at the root. They are the holiness of God, a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. This is meant to be the holy community. 
and tricky, deceitful sin has made its way in. And they're meant to stamp it out and they've done nothing. So there's a sin pattern that's a part of this story of egregious sin. Maybe you have seen it in your own life. But I also want you to just see how brazen it is. I want you to see the movement of it really quickly. Look at verse 6. So this is all going on. There's a plague. The people of Israel are gathered to the tent. And here's what's happening. A man, a, people, a man of, the, of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and the whole congregation. And then a little bit later in verse 8, that's, that man of Israel went into the chamber, kind of the inner part of, the, of a tent, the, kind of the marriage room with this Midianite woman, acting as if this is completely normal. This gross, egregious sin has just walked into the camp, strutted in as if nothing's going on, goes by the leadership, goes by the whole congregation in full view. Before, it seems like all of this was happening outside the camp. They were going to the feasts and the sacrifices. This was happening away, and that's bad enough. But now it's coming home. Sin has now walked in the front door. And it's not just a tiny sin. This is egregious, outright, bold, shameless sin. See, the community of God's people was meant to be holy, right? God's holiness was in the very center. And then the camp around him was, was the area of cleanliness. His holiness made the people holy. Their proximity to Yahweh is what made them holy. Everything outside the camp was the area of uncleanliness. And they were meant to move from the holiness of God out to the areas of uncleanliness to bring the peace and shalom of Yahweh to the world. That was their task. That was their mission. But here, what's happened? The uncleanliness of the outside has made its way in to the holiness of the community, into the very presence where God is. That's how brazen this kind of sin is. And I wonder if you're living in that. You're before the face of God. Are you living in brazen, egregious sin? Is your life right now in 2024 at the very beginning, is it being defined by this kind of story of egregious sin? See, sin has corporate dimensions, individual dimensions. Sometimes we just think sin is about me and the person I sin against. But if you read this, the whole community is involved. The whole community is affected by this one person. 24,000 people die, the whole community weeping, this whole community of God's people affected by sin of one person. And you see here, we're meant to be, this is a sober moment, we're meant to see it for what it is. What, is the, the, what are the wages of egregious sin? Death. Every time. It's outstandingly shocking and bad, and then that's the story of egregious sin. That's the story of my heart. And I wonder if you're like me and it might be the story of your heart. What we need is a better story. If your heart's like that, then you need the story of extravagant grace to come and knock you off your feet because otherwise you'd be dead. So let's see. Let's see the story of extravagant grace and how Yahweh plans to deal with people like you and me. So here it is, the story of extravagant grace, and you see it right at the beginning of verse 6 and 7. There are initial signs of repentance. God's people have seen what they have done. 
They've seen what's going on. They've seen the sexual morality and the idolatry. God's people, Moses, they are running. And where are they running? They're not running away from Yahweh, which would be probably my first thought. They're running right to his very presence. They're gathered at the tent of meeting so that they might weep and mourn over their sin. Friends, that is a beautiful movement of people who belong to the Lord moving toward him when their hearts are filled, when their community is filled with egregious sin. I love the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. That probably comes as no surprise. And I love the shorter catechism, question 87. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin does with grief and hatred for his sin turn from it unto God. That's exactly what we see. See, the story of extravagant grace is you are in community with the one true God. You belong to him. And so when you see sin, you see it for what it is and it breaks your heart. That needs to be the first plot line of your story this year. Does my sin and the sin of my home and the sin of my community, does it break my heart? Does it cause me deep grief and hatred? And do I want to run to Yahweh's presence? And thinking about this idea of being yoked, you see it in verse 3 and you see it again a little bit later in verse 5. It made me think about Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Many of you know this passage where Jesus says, come unto me. All you who are weary and heavy laden by your sin. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Right? For my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Well, friends, I think that that's covenant language. I think that that is Jesus, the faithful bridegroom, inviting a wayward people back to him and saying, take the heavy yoke of sin and shame off and put my yoke on. Again, it's for you. I'm in hot pursuit of you. Come to my presence. Don't run from me. That's the first part of the story of extravagant grace. And then another part of this is I I want us to really grapple with the idea of holiness. God's holiness let loose. We need God's holiness let loose on our lives. And we have to grapple with it in the text because it's intense. So here it is. I want you to look at what happens in this interaction. All right, so we're in verse 6 and 7. This man has brought this Midianite woman into the camp. Sin has stealthily, tricky, deceitful come in to the camp. And they're all at the tent weeping. And then Phinehas, what a name, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. So this is Aaron's grandson. His dad, Eleazar, is the high priest because Aaron's died. So this is Aaron's grandson. He's, he's one of the guards of the tabernacle. He's a chief priest guard, okay, of, of, of the tabernacle. He, out of the corner of his eye, sees what's happening, sees it. He rose, left the congregation, took a spear in his hand, went after the man of Israel. I love that. Went right after the man of Israel into that marriage chamber and then speared them through in the very act of consummating this egregious sin wild. And we have to we have to grapple with this because it's stories like this, the true historical moments like this that avert people away from Christianity. What what is happening here? Can we be okay with this? 
Normally we would expect some sort of trial, some sort of jury, some sort of decision, match it up with God's word. Sorry, this is how things go. And there's a judgment. Phinehas skips all that and goes straight to the execution. How does it make you feel? Maybe the, the part of you is like, yeah, justice. But then the other part of you is like, ooh, that's what I need. I deserve that spear. Well, here we have to understand God's holiness let loose looks like people who are embodying the very character of Yahweh. This is how Yahweh understood what happened. Look at verse 11 and 12. Phinehas turned back my wrath because he was jealous with my jealousy so that I didn't consume the people in my jealousy. That word there is like a word. It's like passionate commitment to my covenant promises. Phinehas sees this egregious covenant breaking, someone spitting in the face of Yahweh, and he gets so passionate for God's covenant that he cannot but deal with the sin that's right in the midst of the camp. He is consumed with love for God and love for his people and passion for the covenant promises that he goes right after the problem. And Yahweh commends him. He says, Phinehas has done well. I'm going to give to him my covenant of peace, my my covenant of wholeness and shalom. It's his and it's a perpetual priesthood. Why? Because he has shown he is committed to me and to my people and to my covenant. Friends, the whole point for the nation of Israel, they were a kingdom of priests. They were all meant to be defined by this level of holiness. That's you and that's me. We need to embody the very character of Yahweh. Does sin break your heart and does sin make you enraged that it's even present? Or are you sometimes, like me, unwilling to deal with sin because it's just too much to deal with? I'm, I'm going to not discipline my children in this area because it's just too much. I'm not going to talk to them who've been slandering other people in our community because I don't want to stir the pot. I'm not going to talk to my, my partner, my, my, my person that I'm in business with because of their financial stuff that they're doing because it would just, I'm, a little, I'm, too, I'm too worried. I'm too worried about my own security. Do we embody the very character of Yahweh? And then also, do do we see here the ultimate goal of this extravagant grace? Look at the end of verse 13. He was jealous for his God, Phinehas, and he made atonement for the people of Israel. You see, what God's people desperately needed wasn't a new calendar and a new year and a fresh start. What God's people, what you and me, what we desperately need is for the sin in our heart to be removed, to be covered over. And that's exactly what Phinehas' action did. It made atonement for the people. In this act of spearing the sinners, of of piercing the sin that had come into the camp, he he covered over, he satisfied the wrath of God. He, He diverted the wrath of God away from his people and let it fall on the sin and the sinners that were right in the middle of the camp. This is a pretty sobering picture. But it's meant to point us to something that is unbelievably extravagant. Remember Adam in the garden? What was his task? He was meant, he was given a priestly task to work and to keep the garden, 
to protect it, to let its holiness exude out so that the holiness and grace and generosity of God could flow to the ends of the earth. And what happened? There was a crafty serpent that weaseled its way, beguiled Adam and Eve and came right into the middle of the holy place. And Adam, the priest of the Edenic garden, failed. But here we have Phinehas, who's a true priest. He sees the sinful, tricky sin coming right into the camp and he eradicates it right there in that moment. Now that ought to startle you because you know your own heart. You know that you ought to be speared through. And if you don't believe that you deserve to be speared through, then you don't really understand the weight and gravity of sin and you don't really understand the immense holiness of the triune God. But it also points us to a better priest. See, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true and better Adam, who was given the task to work and to, to keep the creation, to, to allow the holiness and the grace and the shalom of God to, the, in his kingdom to infiltrate and to, to take over the dominion again. See, where Phinehas pierced sinners through to make atonement for the people, Jesus himself was pierced in the place of sinners like you and me in order to make atonement for his people. See, Jesus didn't pierce sinners like you and me. Instead, he took our place. He carried the wrath of God and satisfied it on your behalf. So that instead of being the unrighteous under the weight of his wrath, you are now sons and daughters of the true king and are made the righteousness of God in him. That, that's the story of extravagant grace. See, the story of egregious sin that's in our hearts, we need that better story. We need that story to define this year and the next year and the next. And I, I ask you, I invite you, is that your story? Are you living in the story of sin? Have you experienced this story of extravagant grace? Hear and believe that the Lord Jesus Christ bore your sins on the tree. He was hung as the curse for God so that you might live to be his blessing both to all of those around and ultimately to the nations to make his name known. That's who you are if you believe in the Lord Jesus. And lastly and very quickly, I want you to see this third story because I think it is the one that goes off into eternity. It's the story of God's everlasting faithfulness. So we make it through this wild interaction with Phinehas and then we come right after the plague ends and they're picking up the pieces and Yahweh says, okay, take a census. This is great for us. It's the beginning of a new year. We need to take a census. And here's what happens. They, they count all of the people el, you know, able to go to war, 20 years old and up. And why are they doing this? Why do we have 60 verses of all the 12 tribes, a bunch of random names, and a bunch of random numbers. It's not just for stat keeping. What's happening here is a beautiful rehearsal of God's promises. What did God promise Abraham in Genesis 12? You're going to have a son. In fact, you're going to have a people that are as numerous as the stars of heaven. The number here is 601,730. We're only 1,800 different from the very first census at the book of Numbers. What does that mean? God has maintained his people. He's kept a remnant for himself who are going to go and experience his blessing because he is faithful and he will do it. 
Not only that, but they need to know how much military might they have and how many people there are for the inheritance because his promise is sure. They're going into the land. They're going to get it allotted. Because God told Abraham, you're going to have a place. You're going to have a land. I'm going to give you this land. Sin might delay God and might delay his, his, his work, but it will not thwart his promises. They will always come true. Every word that he has spoken is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. All of his promises for you and for your children, all who are far off, will come true, are satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can experience them now, today. I was reminded yesterday, a friend texted me, and as I was thinking about the story of faithfulness, of God's everlasting faithfulness, you read this list in, in Numbers 26 of all these names, and it's the 12 tribes and their sons and grandsons, and there's names that are on there that I could, can barely pronounce. And there's lives that are in those stories that we will never know what they did, but they just lived faithful, simple lives to honor the king, and they failed a lot, and they asked for forgiveness, and they went to the next day and died. They never knew their great-grandchildren or great-great-grandchildren, and yet God was faithful generation by generation through the simple acts of his people. And so yesterday, uh, 174 years ago yesterday, um, there was a major snowstorm in England, and a preacher was on his way to his church, but he couldn't make it. This pastor couldn't make it to his church um, he was diverted. The church was in Colchester, England, um, on Artillery Street. And so he was on his way to the church, couldn't make it, and had to go home. And so a layman, just someone in the congregation, had to stand up and deliver a message for the text that day. And the text was Isaiah 45, 22, come unto me and be saved, all ye nations. That's essentially the verse. And that was what he had to expound, and he didn't do a very good job. It was rather ineloquent, as the story goes. Um, it wasn't great. And that morning, there was a 15-year-old boy who was on his way to his home church, which is in a different part of town. But because of the snow, he couldn't make it, so he went to this church because it was closer. And so he sat there in the sanctuary, and he listened to this bad sermon, ineloquently spoken by this faithful man who stood up to preach God's word. Well, that 15-year-old boy was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And on that day, on that very spot, he was converted by the faithfulness of God through a small, simple act of one person whose name we do not know and who we may never know. That's the story of God's everlasting faithfulness. You all have parts of that story in your own lives. So this year, today, I want you to do what Numbers 26 is doing. I want you to take a census. Think back over your life. Think back over this year. Look ahead and say, Lord, you've been faithful there. You're going to be faithful here. There's a lot of uncertainty in front of me, but I know you will because your extravagant grace far outweighs my egregious sin, and I'm going to rest in the King because he loves me and I love him. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you that... Though our sins, they are many, your mercy is more. Your grace is extravagant and covers over us because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to atone for our sins, to avert the wrath of God away from us and allow it to fall on him.
And now we come to his table to receive the grace of the risen king as he nourishes us for the journey. We pray these things in his name. Amen.